You're listening to Vaguely Local, where we look at the vicinal while leaving latitude for variety. I'm Nick McNamara, your host and producer on this exploration of people and issues around the Manhattan area, and occasionally more far-flung folks as situated in their own local contexts and experiences. This episode, I speak with City Commissioner and now District 22 State Senator Yusha Reddy. She's approaching her 10th year in city government and in January was selected to replace Tom Hawk in the Kansas Senate, becoming the first Indian and Asian American senator in state history. I asked the Andhra Pradesh-born politician about that fact, how she navigated the pandemic as both a human and mayor of Manhattan, and also got into some of the conflict over her decision to remain in city government while stepping into the state house. Let's get started. I kind of wanted to just start off general and move more specific and ask you more generally how you first got interested in politics. You've been in the Manhattan City Commission for uh, going on 10 years now, but what what motivated you to run and get involved in elected politics? Yeah, great question. So, uh, you know, I'm an immigrant and um, I had to take a test to become naturalized and I got became a naturalized citizen in 1987. Yeah, 1987. And and when you do that, you get interested because you, it's this honor and privilege, like, wow, I'm a U.S. citizen now, and you want to be you know, really good and involved. So that motivated me to listen to what's going on around me. We would listen to 60 Minutes, read Time Magazine, and all of these things. And then I was able to vote in my first election in 1988, and I think it was um, Jackson. I think he was on the again, and checked him off. And uh, so I've always been interested in a little bit in politics. And then I became a school teacher in Manhattan, moved here in 1992. And during that period, I was involved in um, a group, the Diversity Commission for USD 383, and I was co-chair on that. Um, and that uh, I got into some training things with NEA, and then I became president of our local NEA association. And I realized that's where I really wanted to be was in policymaking. There's only so much I can do by saying what we need, what we need, what we need. But unless there's policies, to get where we need to be, we're not going to get much done. So I ran for State Board of Education in 2012. Uh, it was 23 counties. Nobody knew me. Um, but I was still involved in local things and going to local organizations and nonprofits and Rotary and all of these things. Uh, Jim Shiro at that time said, hey, since you ran a campaign, I know you didn't win, but I think you might be good for city commission. And I was already going to some of the commission meetings. And I believe he was on the city commission at that time and mayor as well. So I, I took it seriously, ran for city commission, and uh, I just loved it. I There was a lot to learn. It's like anything when you jump in the first year is like you're just learning all the policies, procedures, the way things work. And, uh, and then, like I said, I was still teaching and doing this at the same time. But I really enjoyed the relationships part of it and being part of a bigger picture and trying to do more for the city of Manhattan. And being who I am, I didn't think I was going to get elected. And by that, I mean being a woman. Being a public school teacher, I didn't own a business. Uh, I don't, you know, go to the same organizations that most of the political officials do. I'm fairly young, relatively young compared to the generations that typically go for these positions. Um, and I'm an immigrant. I'm a woman of color and my religion is different. So all the dine and I was divorced at the time. So all of these were different. So I wasn't sure what it would be. But I knocked on all the doors, did everything I was supposed to do. And fortunately, I was able to get elected three times. And that each time I was elected, it gave me more sense of responsibility, along with confidence and not to lose the trust of the people. So I continually stayed on track with that. 
And then the US, the uh, I ran for U.S. Senate because I thought that would be a good place since um, Pat Roberts stepped down. Uh, it was a really good race. But then I was mayor in 2020 and I had to suspend my campaign because it was extremely difficult uh, to put in 100 percent of my work during COVID and run for a U.S. Senate campaign. And it's not good for my community that elected me. So I suspended that campaign, focused completely on COVID. And that was 24-7. I was on so many meetings, as everybody knows. Um, and it was very stressful. That was one of the most stressful years of my entire life because I was making decisions. And uh, I thought I might lose the trust of the community um, because we were just so divided. And we've never just been that divided as far as I can remember. Um, but I did okay in the next election. I got reelected again, and then the the, the Senate um, Senator Tom Hawk decided to step retire. So I thought I put my name in the hat again, and uh, I really enjoy it. It's a good place for me. I feel all the knowledge I've gained in city commission and as a teacher, as a mom, all of my life experiences have culminated to make me a better representative. Uh, I've only been at it for about a month, but I feel good about it so far. <laughs> yeah. You know, you mentioned you ran for the State Board of Education prior to your run for the city commission. And, you know, you have all this experience in education. What what sort of inspired you to consider that State Board of Education run? What was it about the state of education in Kansas that that made you want to be a part of that body? Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, at that time, they were talking about evolution and they were talking about our science standards and they were talking about creationism and all of this. and. Um, there was a loud call from our educators, especially our scientists, whether it's K-12 or the university where we work, do something. You know, we can't let this happen. Let's do something. So that's why I ran, because that was the issue that motivated me. Plus, there was just, and it's still there, this um, this annoyance that some, some people have with public education. Uh, and I wanted to let them know this is not somebody who joins in to get rich. This is a, just a labor of love. And there's a lot of teachers that still do two or three jobs in addition to teaching their children. And those were the factors that motivated me to run at that time uh, when we were talking about our science standards and this attack that continues to be there in public education. Yeah, as you look around, you, you're still sort of a, a bit of an opposition to different modes of teaching and different theories of teaching today. And I'm curious as you as you stand back as an educator, how you feel about some of the conversations that are going on. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because I'm on the assessment and taxation committee in the Senate, uh, state Senate, and the biggest bill that we have, or I wouldn't say the biggest bill, the one that got the most attention with two, over 200 proponents or opponents speaking to it is Senate Bill 128, which is giving tax credits to homeschoolers and uh, private school ent entities. So listening to them, and, and I understand uh, their perspectives. Um, so that's going to be an interesting dialogue. We just started the hearings on Thursday, went on to Friday. We're going to do more on Monday, and we'll see where the conversation goes. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I want to get defensive and say, hold on, don't go there. But at the same time, I, you know, I understand what they're saying. I understand about school choice. I understand that my thinking is also about accountability. So anytime you work with um, taxpayer funds, we need to have an accountability. So what do you what are we getting for that? How do we measure that? Um, you know, teachers and schools are held to all of these assessments and standards and credentials and licensing. So how do we how do we know where this money is going? I guess is what it is. I think people typically have good intentions for their children 
And uh, without foundation, with that foundation, that's great. But uh, when when we talk about taxpayer money, we need to see um, exactly and be cautious about um, being held accountable. I will be held accountable, and I think for money, and I think when we give something away, I need to be able to speak to it. So. I'm curious about, um, you know, maybe some of the differences you noticed in running a campaign for a state board of education position compared to the city commission. I imagine there's a lot of different nuances you have to focus on when you're looking at a more focused community like the city, as opposed to something as broad as a state level position. Yeah, so the state one, the senator position I have now came, you know, very differently. The Raleigh County Democrats, the precinct chairs had to vote me in. But when I was running for the state board of education and the city, it is different in the sense that, uh, let's just take the state Senate one. The way I see this is I represent District 22. But as a state senator, I want to think about the state at large, because that money is going to be going to all communities. Um, and so that knowledge about local government has helped me because some people, a lot of people walk in even without that knowledge and make it just for the state or from a philosophical perspective, but mine's based on things I've learned from public works, things I've learned in parks and rec and all of these things. So when I make budget decisions, that's what I do. A unique example would be I'm on the transportation committee and our gas tax has been decreasing over a number of years. And this year it decreased by $4.5 million. And that gas tax goes to fix our city roads and maintenance as well as county roads and maintaining them. And it's been decreasing because vehicles are more efficient, so they don't need as much gas. We have electrical vehicles that don't use gas. So the way we collect gas tax has become archaic, but we haven't changed it in decades. But the committee was ready to move forward and um, you know, move, uh, vote on the budget. And I made an amendment or a recommendation that we get the $4.2 million of the state fund general fund. And, you know, a colleague that I didn't expect would second it was uh, Senator Schellenberger. We are quite different ideology wise, but he was a mayor before. And he said, I understand what she's saying. Yes, I think this is the right thing to do. And it moved forward. And that was really unexpected. I just thought I would throw it out there. Certainly nobody's going to second it, but I can't forget about my city because we are raising taxes, either property taxes or sales taxes, and that's where it's going to fall. So that's the knowledge I bring here. And that impacts rural communities the most. Those roads are used so much. And if those communities uh, don't have a finance structure, they won't be able to maintain their own roads. So that's where it helps my community, but it also helps the city, state at large, that knowledge. So I felt really good about that. And I didn't have to walk in not knowing any of the acronyms or details about things. And it also gives me, shall I say, uh, a set of expertise if I email USD 383 or city staff or anybody in my community because I know them on a personal level. It helps me become a better decision maker. Yeah, that's one of the things I really enjoy about local politics is there's sort of a pragmatic focus to it. It's mm -hmm. not, I mean, it's not always this way. Of course, there can right. be partisanship in city governments across the country and not to mention here in Manhattan, of course. But, you know, there's always tends to be this uh, laser focus to a degree on just making sure you're doing the right thing for at least the most of the population. And uh, it helps when you have a nonpartisan election as well. So uh, mm -hmm. it, it sounds like a lot of that expertise and the sort of focus has really lended itself well to you in your new position. It has. I think being a public school teacher where you have to work with parents that, you know, have different opinions and also being a, uh, on the city commission has helped me understand uh, 
to focus on the policies and not the person. So when we focus on the policy and the funding and money and where it's going to our communities, you can get a uh, broader support. You may not get any support because at the state, things go by really fast and things are very partisan. So when I approach things, I don't approach them as us against them kind of attitude, but this is how it will help your community. And if you if you disagree, that's fine. But I, you know, if I never ask and if I never try, I'll never know. So I try to, I think I've learned that language being on the city commission, uh, whether it's for the university or Fort Riley or for nonprofits. Uh, I think having that thorough vetted discussion is very good. Those discussions, the vetted discussions don't happen much in Topeka. They're so fast. And I'm like, well, we need to talk about it a little bit more, but it's voted out even before you get a chance. But because I have that background, it's helped me a lot. Do you think a lot of the, you know, you mentioned how fast things go. Um, do you think a lot of maybe the discussion elements that you get in the city commission level is sort of now is sort of relegated to a, a background research or a prior research area when it comes to the state level? That, as in you're expected to get that conversation and those that research ahead of time and much more behind the scenes rather than on the floor. Oh, yeah. I'm sh- I mean, I've only been there a month. These people have been there for years. So they probably worked on most of this legislation throughout the summer and may and some of it's repeated over a period of years, like the tax credits. I mean, things like that come over a year and a year and again. So it's new to me. It's not new to them. So being the novice in the room, I just had to pick up speed quite quickly. But most of them are familiar. They can almost predict what's going to come up next year because they've just been in that environment for so long. So I think for them, it's not fast enough, probably. How many years are we going to do this? Let's get moving. And I'm like, wait, I need more information. Uh, or I, let's discuss this a little bit further. So we're just coming from uh, different experience levels. But my uh, city commission experience has helped me to catch up much faster. So I'm not... Uh, too stressed out about it. When you reflect back on your nine, uh, coming up on 10 years in the Manhattan City Commission, how do you feel about it? Um, I know things have been maybe a little more stressful in the last mm-hmm. few years as we've gone through the pandemic, but as you look back at the entirety of it, what's your takeaways on how it's been? I really loved it. And um, words like love and hate are, you know, unique, but um, I have really enjoyed my experience. Uh, I love working with people, even with different ideologies. In fact, those are the best ones. I don't want to have people constantly agreeing with me and not challenging it. And I don't want to assume the one that is, uh, has challenged me is wrong uh, because that's not often the case. And I come into, I think all of us come into it thinking we're going to make Manhattan better. I don't think anybody's on the city commission trying to make it worse. Uh, so. It helps to have us have our different strengths. And I think that's what makes it really run well, uh, because we do think differently. We bring so many different strengths to it. And at the end of the day, we represent everybody in the city of Manhattan. So I'm glad that we don't we don't always agree on everything. And there's a lot of things we do agree on. So that's helpful, too. But I've enjoyed it because I want to be with people that that are diverse in thought and ideology to make me a better person. Uh, when I make decisions at other levels and other in my in my personal life and in my professional life, my children have, you know, are in different careers and they they are with different types of significant others and spouses. So it makes those conversations uh, stronger as well. And being exposed to the elements of chamber of commerce, let's say, and property taxes and sales taxes and income taxes and 
uh, Parks and Rec and how important these fees are, garage fees. You know, we had about, you know, so many people talk about garage fees, things that you wouldn't think are as important. And I put that in quotes because we think the budget is the most important thing, but nobody shows up for that. But when you raise fees here and there and they show up, you know that that's when you have to listen to the community. And and when they show up, we really need to listen. And that's what I've learned is I make assumptions still to this day. This is going to be really important to my community. When I realized, actually, nobody really cares about that. I really need to listen to what they're listening to. But when you're in the crux of things that everybody, that's all everybody's talking about, you think it's the most important thing. So you sometimes have to separate yourself from that. And the city commission has helped me do that and helps me helps me become a better public servant, I think, for the community at large. How do you navigate times in local government when perhaps people are a little more agitated or uh, things become a little more controversial? We we talk about the fee increase regarding uh, garage garages and then on-street parking uh, regulations. But also, as we look back to 2020, there was a little bit of agitation around COVID-19 restrictions. And mm-hmm. as mayor at the time, a lot of that got directed your way. How do you navigate some of the controversy and just um, at times vitriol that comes yeah. out of high emotions? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, I think it impacted me thinking, yeah, that's what I signed up for. But it impacted my husband even more. Uh, he was more scared for me and, you know, calming him down. And I think sometimes people don't understand that when you attack a personal a professional that's the face of it, the family inside, it hurts them deeply because they feel like they need to do something. And I'm saying, you can't do that. You can't say that. And, and you know, so now they're having to squelch their own emotions and that's not healthy either. Uh, so I think I had, I was scared well, for a few months because, you know, we are public officials. So people know where I live. Uh, we have, you know, my phone number is easily accessible. My email is accessible. So there was a lot of hateful things being said. There was an entire billboard dedicated to Aaron Estabrook, myself and Linda Morris, you know, to go through that kind of efforts um, was was scary and daunting. Um, but I had to stick with what was safe for the community. And, uh, and if I didn't get reelected, and that's why I lost, I would be very comfortable with that. I don't want to get elected. I don't want to run for office just to get elected. I want to run for office because people believe in what I'm doing. And sometimes decisions some people, some elected officials may make are to get elected to the next election. I don't want to do that. And there was just too much at stake. All the information was just so fluid. And working with the university and the governor and the president's office, all of these things and our businesses, there was a lot of conversations that were happening where just tough decisions had to be made. And a lot of them were three, two unfortunately. And and they were representing who they needed to represent. And I get that. Uh, The nation was divided. So all of us were feeling it from the governor to the president to Kansas State University president, business owners, everybody. There was just no winning. Uh, I think that was, like I said, one of the most difficult years. And and people thought for sure I wasn't going to get elected. And I wasn't sure myself, Um, but it had to be done. And I'm glad I was mayor. I don't want somebody. I'm glad somebody else wasn't mayor at that time. Because if we didn't have restrictions, that would have been even more scary, I think. And and we can't look back and see if that had an impact or not. But I'd rather be on solid grounding with our public health official than just uh, ideology. And I and I and that's what I had to fall back on. But I I'm very thankful I was mayor. I wouldn't change that year for anything. You know, I think a lot of people, especially as we're now a few years out from maybe like the immediacy of the pandemic, not that there isn't still COVID-19 out there, of course, but 
uh, a lot of people are reflecting back on how it's impacted them. They're getting more time to breathe and how it's maybe shaped the way they are today. And I'm curious if if you feel any impact on yourself and how it's changed maybe the way you look at things or just feel in the world today. Yeah, it has. I, I, I don't know how you can get out of 2020 and not feel that. Um, so my son, he lives in L.A. and he's the pulmonary physician, pulmonary critical care. So he was seeing death every day. Five people, 10 people dying every day and having to put an iPad in front of them so they can say goodbye to their parents. And he was just devastated because he's a young man. That's not what he signed up for. And now he had residents under him who he had to teach how to navigate death. And he would call me and say, I hope you have in your will somewhere on what you want me to do if you if this happens. And those are things I don't think about. He said, I don't want to make that decision for you because I'm making that decision for everybody every day. And my daughter was facing the same thing, and she's a physician as well. And in the community, Brian and I didn't get COVID. We got COVID after we got our immunizations and everything. So we were in our house. And how into how the difficulty for a lot of people was staying with your spouse or children 24-7 in your home. And that definitely changes you. It changes your how you teach your children. It some create it creates animosity. It might bring you together, it might divide you, but those are things we had to navigate. It changed me as a person in the sense that I I don't think take things for granted. I, I never have, but I just don't. I just don't know how long, if I'm going to be alive tomorrow. I don't know if such thing as such thing as long COVID is going to come back and do something to me. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to lose my memory. Uh, so I I don't take it for granted. And I I respect the fact that we got into Zoom meetings like this because it's helped me become more involved in things just because we can do more things online. I think it's helped us update our technology across the board. I think now people can work remotely and not feel guilty and people had to make human resource changes, things we didn't, we said we can't do before, now we are being forced to do. And I think that's the positive side of it. The negative side can be our, when we say workforce, I don't know if it's negative or not. I think people realized I prioritize differently now, you know, and uh, I'd rather be at work this long and be with my family. Or I'd rather take more vacations. I want to have more life experiences. Or, you know, I thought I loved my job, but, you know, if I'm not going to live very long, I want to do the job I really love and not just work for health insurance. So these are tough decisions people had to come to. And I'm I'm in the same spot. Brian retired and he's volunteering now and has wonderful things he's doing. But um, it's it's changed the way business runs, even in city staff and even at the state level. So I definitely feel the impact of that. As we mentioned, I think before we got on the the call, um, it was January 5th, you were selected to replace Senator Tom Hawk in the Senate District 22, and in just about a month now. And I'm curious how you got involved and threw your hat in the ring, so to speak, in, in vying for that position. Yeah, um, Senator Tom Hawk knew he was, uh, I knew he was going to retire at some point. Um, you know, he's been at it for a long time. So I always felt like I would I would be good at that seat. Uh, but I wasn't never going to primary him. He was doing such a great job. That would that would just be ridiculous. Uh, but I also didn't know where I was politically. I didn't even know if I wanted to ever run for office again or be on the city commission again. But when he told me he was stepping down, I definitely said I was interested in the position. And he said, you know, Katie Allen was interested also. And I said, oh, well, that's great. And uh, so she being the chair, I let her know uh, out of courtesy since she was chair of the Riley County Democrats that I'm interested and she was, she was, she said she was interested. And then getting the precinct chairs and working hard to make sure that was another stressful part of it is that 
you know, you can't make assumptions. Even though I've known these people all my life, you don't know if they're going to support you. It's not a matter of taking it personally, but if they will vote for you. And I think that's what it was. So I made tons of phone calls, worked and worked and worked on it. And I'm sure she did so also on her end. And uh, I, it was, you know, 19 to 24. Um, and I think I think that's good that there's somebody else who wants to run. And I think it's good. I also, like I said, hope she runs for city commission or keeps in the process of running for another office. Um, but I I was nervous. I think that was one of the more nervous elections because I just didn't know what people were thinking or, you know, they may want somebody younger. They may want somebody different. Maybe they felt like you're doing so good on the city commission. What happens if you leave the seat? That's what I heard a lot. We don't want somebody else to replace you. You know, we like you there right now. Maybe you can run for this a different time. And then uh, then there was the fear, well, well, you know, if you run, you're going to leave. And then we don't know what, what else we're going to, again, came back to my position on the city commission. But that was a narrative they had for me. And it's a narrative that I, I didn't want to accept. You know, if it was anybody else, you would say, yes, move on to the next seat. And there was a lot of people that said, yes, you belong there. We're going to vote for you. So it was tough, uh, just the way it went down. Uh, tough in the sense that um, they everybody liked me and wanted to vote for me, but they some saw me staying on the city commission and some wanted me in the state. Uh, and I think there were conflicting thoughts about it. So I didn't take any of that personally, but I'm glad to be where I am. And I feel like because I uh, because it was that close or because people feel I'm going to let them down on the city commission, it makes me work harder to make sure we have a process on the city commission to put somebody else there to replace me. So I don't want to let them down because I'm still a, I'm still there for them. So I want to make sure I uh, fulfill my promise to the people that elected me. And I, and I take that very seriously as well. Did, did Senator Hawk reach out to you specifically about your interest or was it just something that as you heard about the, the possibility of his retirement that you sort of reached out and spoke to him? Yeah, I, I spoke to him. He called me and he told me he was retiring. And that's when I said I was interested. I think he ruled out a lot of people that were already elected. So he felt like, oh, you're already on the city commission. You have three more years to go. You're going to be mayor. So he didn't think I would be interested, just like he didn't reach out to any other elected officials, whether it's Carla Hagemeister, Jimmy. Maybe he did. I don't know. So I think that's what it was. Typically, they don't reach out to your own elected officials. And he was thinking about somebody else. And I think that's where uh, Katie Allen said she was interested. And you mentioned that that the evening of the vote, you were, you were kind of nervous. And um, after the vote came out, what was sort of your takeaway? How did you feel? What what was that like? I was excited. I was, it was just unbelievable because I was exhausted because I was calling everybody. But I was, I was. It was a nail biter, and I was really, really scared. And once it was done, I was relieved, um, and and concerned because I don't know what the next day looked like. Because uh, now I have two elected positions, and I wanted to make sure. But I knew I wanted this. I was just so excited. And then it makes, like I said, made me want to work harder because I know the ones who didn't uh, vote for me, but didn't vote for me because of their concern for the city commission. And I wanted to make sure that I at least uh, do my due diligence with that spot and also encourage Katie and anybody else that's in that office, in that room to run for office because we have three seats coming up now four, hopefully that they run because we need them there too. state is a big leap and you're coming in the middle of it. Like I said, it's already fast paced. But I also said these legislators have been work, working on this legislation for years and I'm the newbie. So to me, it's fast. So if you don't know any of that lingo, it would be extremely hard. So I felt, yeah, this is where I need to be and I'm going to be I'm going to do it well. 
So there was no regrets after that. I'm wondering if you've reflected at all on um, being an Indian American in the Kansas Senate. I was doing some research and, you know, it's kind of hard to find data on diversity in the Kansas Senate and Kansas legislature as a whole. But um, as I was looking around, I couldn't find a single instance as I Google it. The only Mm -hmm. uh, instance of Indian American in Kansas Senate that ever came up was was you. And I'm I'm wondering whether you may be the first ever. I am. Uh, I, I never talk about my color or my, you know, demographics, but I am. There were, I believe, uh, so I'm also Asian. So people don't think of Indians as Asian. They often think about as, you know, from China or other other communities or other countries, Southeast Asian. So there were, uh, I think, um, Raj Goyal and, uh, you know, we have Rishu and we have, uh, I, I believe there was another Indian in the House of Representatives. But I am the first Asian American and the first Indian uh, in the state Kansas uh, Senate. So, uh, you know, I've never, like I said, I've never really put that out there because I feel like sometimes that might just distract people, but it's, it's true. And I, I, it felt odd at first when I realized, oh, I'm the first at this. There hasn't been another, not only Indian, not another Asian. There hasn't been another Asian from any other country in this position in the state Senate. I had to reach out to our legislative research folks because I asked them that question and they said, well, we don't have any record of this. Uh, and I said, so is it okay if I say I that I am the first Asian in the Kansas Senate? And they said, since there's no record of this, we can't say it's okay or not okay. But right now we have no record of anybody else. <laughs> so they were trying to be used their legalese on this. You know, so I said, okay. So yeah, I think, uh, I think it's clear to say that. Um, and I'm also working with Rishu, Representative Shu, on having a Pacific Islander commission because we don't have one right now. And I did put out a bill for that. So we'll see what happens with that and um, trying to collect information. And it's about workforce and everything else. It's not so much about, you know, equal rights and I need this, this and this. It's just um uh, the the community doesn't have they have the resources. But when we talk about uh, a so I was with Brown back when there was uh, the Olathe shooting happened with two Indians and he had a, a meeting and I was one of, I was mayor at that time and he invited Indians there. And at that time he said a list of things. And one of those uh, he said was we need to have an Asian American task force or a committee. And that never just happened. So I felt like we should have something because we have a lot of businesses, whether it's Scorpion or anything else, we have a lot of international students in our universities we have a lot of businesses, whether it's grocery stores or restaurants or whatever it might be, but none of them have a place to go as a resource uh, in the in the state of uh, state of Kansas. So I felt like you know that's something I can work towards. If it doesn't happen this year, I'm okay with it. But I felt like I should at least try for it. And I mean, it is a very real fact that um, businesses run by people of color mm-hmm. tend to get a little bit less less access to things like capital investment right. or loans. And so, you know, having a focus on that certainly does touch on an important need in the state. Mm-hmm. And representation matters. And I feel like I need to do that. I, you know, I'm put in a place each time for a different reason. And I need to make sure that that happens because it is our graduate students and all of all of your research and all of this is done by typically they reach out to graduate students from other countries and they need to be successful. Our businesses don't know where to go because the culture or the processes are so different on websites. And it's oftentimes who, you know, so if we have a place where they can go to find resources 
It won't solve every all the problems, but at least there's a hub now where they can reach out to something and feel comfortable with their own challenges and not having to worry about what somebody else might think, or maybe that's not a good question, or maybe they'll, you know, it's not safe to ask that question. So they should be able to do it. And my son, he's in New York and he's the associate director for the Asian American Federation. And he in New York, it's very vastly different. So we're just a little microcosm of it. But he sent me lots of data of how the economic impact is even on Kansas. And people are leaving Kansas. So we should be doing everything we can to keep them here and give them a reason to be here. I'm curious how it feels to to be the first. You know, as you look back, as you reflect on the fact that, you know, maybe maybe there has been someone, but they don't have records. But what is it like to know that? What is it like to to, you know, see the media from both Mm -hmm. international Indian uh, publications as well as Indian diaspora publications here in the U.S. just really highlight this achievement for you? What is it like to see all of that and just be in that position? It's it's actually cool. But even on the city commission, I'm the first, you know, so I've been the first for the past 10 years. And uh, and in any aspect in the state of Kansas, I've been the first in many respects, but it's not something I, I say. So it never really gets picked up. So I don't put on a press release. I don't start it off with that. Um, but yeah, even on the city commission, I'm the first Indian, first Asian. Uh, I'm also, I believe, the first woman of color on the city commission. I'm not sure there was one, at least on the research I've done. And then in the state. So I don't, I mean, I know it every day. I don't use it every day, but I know when I walk in the room, that's what everybody sees every day. So I don't have to tell them the obvious, Uh, but I do know when I'm there, I'm representing a whole different perspective, a different ideology. And, and you can't help, but do that. And people say, well, you know, you don't have to say, you know, you're Indian or a woman of color. And sometimes it's women that say that I said, but when you walk in the room, you kind of, as a woman, you see how many men are there and how many women are there. And as an Indian, I walk in the room and I I do see how many women are there and how many men are there. And I also see how many people of color are there because that's just who I am. You cannot not see that. And so, but I don't say it. I don't speak to it. Like, just like I won't say, oh, on the city commission, most meetings, I'm the only woman there. And Linda is the same, you know, most city commission meetings, we're the only woman there, but we don't say that because it's obvious. And then it just becomes a distractor and they go away from your qualifications and I, I felt like I ran on my qualifications and in my experience, and that's why I'm here. And I happen to be the first Indian. I happen to be the first Asian. And, and that's just a thought, but I'm here because of all of this other stuff. And people sometimes think, well, she's on this because she's a woman of color, because they wanted diversity. And I don't want to be that box. So I think that's what makes me stay away from it. But I know that's the box I'm in uh, most often when I walk into rooms. Um, but I'm also there for all the experience I bring to it. So even though you're Indian, you have all of these experiences. You're not there just as an Indian, just like you're not there just as a man. You have some qualifications that you have, but the hurdles are different. Uh, the challenges are different. And so you have to, like I have always, I will always have to work a hundred times harder for a variety of demographics that I have to check off uh, because I have to present to the message and use the language that they will hear so they don't, so people that I want to convince don't feel offended, don't feel like they have to get defensive, I don't feel like they're being attacked. Uh, I have to use the messaging such that they see how this might be good for their own communities. And that's a tough job. Um, otherwise, they'll only remember you as an angry woman. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned representation matters. And as you look here in the local level, I always talk about it as, 
it's hard to see yourself in the picture of Manhattan if there's no picture of you in Manhattan in a way. So in a way you bring that experience or that availability or that uh, presence to the state legislature. And, but also in, in the gender aspect as well, I was doing some research before we got on this call and across the country, it's about 30% of state legislatures are made up of women. And it's pretty much the same here in Kansas overall about 30%. And the, the Senate is actually a lot more diverse than that here in Kansas. I think it's seven, at least as of 2022, it was 17 out of 40 seats were women. It might yeah. might not be accurate in 2023, though, but it does provide a unique vantage point from which to evaluate the issues and make decisions. Yeah, it absolutely does. I think when I was sworn in and my kids were there um, <clears throat> in front of me, I sit in Tom Hawk's seat in front of me is Senator uh, Olitha Fauskado. She's the first African-American woman. And next to her is uh, Senator David Haley. And he is uh, three generations off from Alex Haley, who from Roots. So, and when I was sworn in, I sat down all giddy and everything. And Ty Masterson, Senator Ty Masterson came and he was congratulating me. And she grabbed his hand and said, we're making history here today. She's the first Indian and first Asian. We're making history here today. And that didn't sink in till she used those words because she's just this, this stellar, classic, authentic woman who, who speaks for me in so many ways that I don't have the language to do, nor do that, nor do I have the credentials and relationship with Senator Masterson that she does. And that just gave me goosebumps when, when she says things like that. So yeah, that made it very real. And when I'm there, that's what I see. I feel like, yes, this is where I belong. And yes, I'm going to make a difference, not only for my community, but everybody that looks like me and for future generations that are going to be here. And touching back on um, when we were discussing your selection on January 5th, you know, you said maybe there were some folks who wanted you to stay in your position on the city commission rather than seek a, a position in the state level. And um Ultimately, you're doing both for the time being. You will eventually, as you, you've told me, that you will eventually resign from the city commission. And I'm curious sort of how you went about making that decision. What sort of motivated you to, sort, uh, to, to, to continue in both positions? Of course, there is no requirement that you leave that city position by law. There's nothing making you step down. And there's been numerous other uh, representatives at the state level that have you know, held positions at the local level as well. And I'm curious why you chose to sort of be in both areas. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I went to the military conference AUSA in November, I think, or October. And Jeff Underhill went on that conference with us from Junction City. He was mayor. And we were talking and he's, he was running for the to for a representative seat. And he well, he wasn't he didn't even have any opposition. So he was a shoe in. And I said, So are you going to stop being mayor? And he said, No, I'm going to do both. And I looked at him. I said, That's the craziest thing I ever heard. How are you going to do both? And he said, well, there's some things that are projects we started and I want to make sure they, you know, they're finished before I um, don't do it anymore. And um, his colleague, Nate Butler, was also running for a representative and he was going to step down. And that's exactly what happened. He stepped down and he stayed on. So when this came, you know, I learned about it maybe two weeks before January 5th that Tom Hawks resigning and OK, I'm going to do this. So I called a whole bunch of people. I called uh of course, our state, uh, our city legal attorney, uh, Katie Jackson and Ron, to see actually what the legal stance is on all of this. And they said, no, you can do both if you choose to. And here's where you stand in all of these things. And I talked to other friends like Senator Haley. He's on a different commission as well. Um, 
there's lots of people that are on school boards. And if they, and then I talked to our uh, Dinah Sykes, Senator Sykes, who's the uh, minority leader for the Senate. And I said, I might do both. What do you think? She said, oh, that's fine. We'll work with your schedule. So I felt like now the decision is mine. Nobody's saying not to do it. That would have been easier, but nobody was saying not to do it. So now I had to make a decision and I decided to stay on. And then rumors were, well, people feel like you can't do both jobs at once. And I said, okay, then I will step down at some point. I said, okay. And so there was just this kind of rumor mill going around. And then I um, just thought about it really long and hard. And I just thought I will have a conversation uh, with, um, with, with Ron and some of my friends and that this is a three-year term, uh, three years left on my term. And the city commission is selected by the city commissioners if I was to resign. And they can pick anybody. We don't have a process. No interest forms nothing. They can put anybody they want. And I didn't think that was fair to give my the votes I voted for, for for so long to have three years left, which is pretty long, to give it to somebody else who didn't work that hard and whose ideology would be very different. And I know Manhattan believes in um, balance because they elected Wynne Butler and me several times. And we are polar opposites in our ideology. We think alike on several issues and we vote almost similar in most of them. But that's what they wanted was a balance. And they already have, quote unquote, a majority uh, in some of the ideology philosophy. And I didn't feel it fair to give them a fourth one uh, of, of like-minded people. That, that wouldn't represent what the community elected when they elected me. So I decided to stay on and uh, uh, so, I, and Mayor had us all new. Um, I had a conversation with him. I said, I don't feel comfortable just leaving. And he understood what I was saying. And I think he, in his words, when he said she earned the vote, she should stay and she can go whenever she wants. I'm not going to kick her off. And I think he's, he's speaking what's on his mind. And I, I, he was being genuine about that. So I think we would like to look at having a fourth person elected in this um, city commission race. And I would feel comfortable with that. How long does that take as far as our ordinances and everything that I'm willing to stay on as long as it takes? I can fairly do both of them comfortably right now because I know how the city works. So I don't have to dive into every single word on the um, packet that I get. I still meet with uh, Ron Fear on Monday mornings at 1030 before our city commission meetings, have an hour of discussion with him. So I feel I, because I've been there nine years, I'm not a freshman at it. Uh, and I can still do both because I still come home every day. I go to work every day and I still come home every day. So I won't be missing meetings. Um, and I hope to roll off once we have a process in place. If the process doesn't happen, then I will stay on until we figure something out. But I, I would not be a good public official if I didn't try everything possible for the community that elected me to do that. And it's not fair to have give my seat to somebody of of a completely different ideology than mine. Yeah, and I and I'm sure you've heard some of the criticisms about the decision by this point a month on. Um, you know, two people in the room that evening, city commissioners Butler and Mata, were um, pretty seemed pretty adamant about finding a way to sort of make you make the decision a lot sooner to step right. down and or force your hand one way or another, and then. Um, you know, there's also been talk. I've heard some folks on a lot of social media chatter, of course, but mm -hmm. talking about, you know, concerns about serving on a partisan position at the state level mm -hmm. as well as the city level. And, you know, ultimately it came down to Mayor Hattesall's decision that evening mm -hmm. on uh, whether they would, as they're considering an ordinance to prohibit something from this happening in the future, it came down to Mayor Hattesall's decision to not 
make that something that forces you out to allow you to be grandfathered in or grandmothered in, I suppose, to Mm -hmm. continue in the position. And were you at all surprised by his choice? I was and I wasn't because I know uh, uh, Mayor Hattestall enough to know that um, he likes the way processes are and he understands elections and that, yes, I was voted in. What was disappointing was the conversation to have not hold dual offices because there's plenty of them. My colleague, Dustin Junction City, they're not having that conversation. You know, nobody cares. Everybody's perfectly fine. Here they wanted to kick me off. The other fact of the matter is when they said elected office being partisan. So now I represent the state, uh, District 22, but I represent everybody. It's a, I'm a Democrat, but I still represent everybody. Everybody knows when I will go anywhere, I'm a Democrat. Even if it's a nonpartisan race, people know I'm a Democrat. I've never hid it from anybody. I nor have anybody else that's running for office, whether it's uh, you know Commissioner Butler, Commissioner Hattison, none of us have ever, everybody, everybody knows our uh, affiliation, political affiliation. The other part of that was, uh, Commissioner Mata was elected to be precinct chair, and that's an elected position. And it's more partisan because he's only working for Republicans. And so when um, our legal attorney, Katie Jackson, said, we have two people on the city commission that are in elected office that night, and nobody picked up on that. It was him and me, and his is more partisan. So if they were going to kick me off, they better kick him off, too because at least I represent everybody and he still only represents Republicans because that's his job. And, and that he was elected in an official office for that, but that's not, that, that was never picked up by anybody, even though that was part of the conversation we had. And then during that conversation, it was also said, yeah, but precinct chairs don't have any, uh, don't have any power. And I said, well, Senator, I have a lot of power. Like, what am I going to do? And then, and then they reversed it near the end. We were just kind of, teasing each other in a way. And, and that ended with um, Mark said, except when they have to elect you, <laughs> because that's what happened. That's the most powerful position, right? If you're a precinct chair, they elected me. So if he's precinct chair, that's the most powerful position more than mine when you're going to elect somebody. But that conversation never happened. And that's a dual office as well. So I think uh, they want to, if it was one of them that was in the Senate seat, I don't think we would be having this conversation. It feels personal. Yeah, it does in a way, because it's not happening anywhere across the state. I think they were just upset that it was me. If it was Commissioner Butler or Commissioner Motter or anybody else, if it was one of them that was elected to the state and they wanted to do both, I don't think anybody, any of them would have. I, I know Mayor Morris and I probably wouldn't have said anything because it's normal. But right now we will be the only city in the state of Kansas that has this ordinance, the only one. And the reason this was there where you can do dual offices is in a lot of rural areas, they don't have enough people to run for all of these offices. So they have it there, just like if you're a principal and you're the janitor. I don't know. You know, you kind of have to think because you just don't have enough people doing things. And plus, being a city commissioner uh, wouldn't have that much of I would I'm one person out of 40. So I wouldn't be able to tilt the scale in most of the things. And I'm in the minority anyway. So I, I don't think that was I think the people who wrote that statute put a lot of thought into it. Nobody's concerned about how Representative Jeff Underhill is going to vote on either one of them. And nobody's really done nearly as much. Well, nobody's even brought it up to him that it's not right. And I think so there was a I think there was an example over in St. Mary's as well. Maybe not mm-hmm. currently, but in the past yeah. few years, I think uh, Francis Auerkamp served in dual positions as well, from what I can remember. Yeah, I know at least uh, 14 people 
that are doing it, that are either on a school board and a representative or that are on um, uh, water board authorities or even on county commission, Tom Burroughs, Representative Tom Burroughs, I believe is in our county commission I, I, or somewhere like that. David Haley is on another position. So I know several that are. It's not, uh, it's not unique to Manhattan. And it's not the first time. It's It's been done for many, many years by many, many people. It's just now. And we were thinking about a process last year, uh, you know, when we were working through, how do you elect the next person? Well, nobody wanted to have that conversation. None of us were even talking about this. We were just thinking, what if somebody gets really ill or something? But we didn't even work on it. So if we worked on an actual process, we wouldn't be in this position right now. What, what, so maybe would, you, what would you hope to see in terms of a process going forward? I think we're discussing uh, where instead of three commissioners, we elect four commissioners and the fourth one would take my position and complete the last two years of my position. And so that gives the power back to the community to elect that fourth person. And that's the way I would like to see it. I'd rather see the community pick them. And whether I, I believe the community is always right in their elections. So I, I believe it up to them. I just don't think it should be us, this group of people doing that. Well, moving back to the state legislature and your selection to serve in Senate District 22, what's the orientation like when you get picked into to step into that position? What sort of uh, background information are you given? How do they prepare you to serve? Yeah, well, they don't really, because everybody else had an election. So there was orientation even before I stepped in. So I stepped in after they were all sworn in. And then uh, Senator Tom Hawk retired on the 10th officially, and I was sworn in on the 11th. So he, I drove in on that Friday, I think, or Thursday, right after I was elected, and walked around with Senator Hawk, and he introduced me to people and showed me around and where I would sit and how things happen. And then uh, I have a mentor, so um, Minority Chair Dinah Sykes is my mentor, so if I have questions, I talk to her. But oftentimes, it's just go. You just kind of, I knew all the legislators already, so I was able to have meetings with them and talk about uh, how things work, or if I have concerns or questions and everything, but there wasn't really much of an orientation per se. I just, uh, and and Katha Hurt is my assistant, and she was the assistant for Senator Tom Hawk. So she already knew the lay of their land. So she was an immense help through all of this. And she was also principal of one of our schools. She was also in the House of Representatives. So she knew how to do everything. So she's been uh, wonderful for me to not worry about so many um, little details and for me to just go and run with it. So it's been it's been really good. And like I said, I've already had a relationship when I ran for U.S. Senate. I knew most of the senators. So that relationship, I was able to pick up where we left off. And as far as like getting started, um, how's that been? What what sort of been the process like in terms of um, getting used to the scheduling and just figuring mm -hmm. out sort of where your place is as a senator? Yeah, um, I don't know where my place is as a senator. Uh, I think, you know, when I come with the mindset of being new, uh, energetic, and coming from city commission, I just want to get things done. And, you know, things go either really fast or really slow. I think immediately, my colleague across the hall, uh, Senator Cindy Holscher, on day two of me being sworn in, she came in and said, we're going to work on removing statute of limitations. Do you want to sign on? I said, yes, of course I do. But you already had that relationship for three or four years ago because of uh, my personal issues uh, from my childhood. So I signed on to it immediately. So there I was already on a bill. Now, a few days later, you know, Representative Shu walked into my office. He said, you know, we don't have an Asian Pacific Islander commission. Do you want to do this with me in the Senate? You do it in the Senate and I'll do it in the House. I said, yeah, I had no idea what all of that meant. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then the third one was um, 
the Area Agency on Aging, Judy Goldberg uh, Walters and uh, Linda Morris emailed me and said, you know, we, we don't get an exemption like other agencies that are agencies of aging. Uh, can you help us with this bill? And I said, sure. And Sydney Carlin had one already in the works from last year, and they've been working on it for several years and it never happened. So I worked on some of these bills with our staff and figuring out, and I would ask Katha, how do you do things? And I asked other senators how to go about doing these things. So that's been extremely helpful. And I think the pace is, I usually get up at 5.30, pick up my um, Katha. She also lives in Manhattan. We leave Manhattan around seven. We get there at eight. My first committee meeting is at 8.30. My second committee meeting is at 9.30. Then I have a little bit of room, but there's usually lots of people coming in every 15, 20 minutes. Everybody's booked in. And then you have all these conversations. And then I have our Senate caucus, our Senate uh, meets on the floor at 2.30 every day. So we do that. Then we have a few more meetings. And then at uh, four or five, usually Kathy and I come home or there might be receptions to go to. So then I go to some of those receptions. But I told her, you know, Tuesdays are off limits after four o'clock. So it's pretty fast paced, but I take notes on everything. So I'm not there just, I don't do small talk very well. I'm like, tell me what you're here about. Let's tell, you know, what are your priorities? So I carry all my books with me and write everything down and um, touch back back with them. And then just, just lots of emails, make sure. And everybody has different issues, just like on the city commission that are not in front of me. I'm only on two committees, but they're talking about all of these other bills coming in. So I tried to get more information about those bills. So it's just go, 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 go. And then you just collapse and then you do it the next day. Uh, But it's fun. You know, when you love what you do, it doesn't seem like work. Uh, So, and being a novice at it or freshman senator, I'm still very energetic. And I feel like, wow, I want to get so much done. So we'll see how far, how much I actually do get done on some of these things. Um, but I, it's, it's really good. It's, it's good to see so many senators there and all of them working and they already know the politics of it. You know, it's a, it's a big game of sorts, but I don't know the game yet. I'm sure I'll figure it out when people stop talking to me (laughs) or they say she needs to not do that anymore, uh, or something, but not that hasn't happened yet. So I, I think people have been extremely supportive trying to get newsletter out that took a long time, how to figure out how I wanted to do my newsletter. So things that you wouldn't, think are a big deal are a pretty big deal but so far i see here on the website also that you you're a co-sponsor or at least Mm -hmm. one of the sponsors on a couple bills that have been introduced fairly recently um at least introduced one's been referred to a committee already one dealing with abolishing the death penalty and creating a crime of aggravated murder and the other on allowing cities or municipalities in general to raise their minimum wages yeah, it's interesting because the other three I spoke to you about are statute of limitations. So even though I was sponsoring on them, it's better for some of these to go out of committee. So it seems like a bipartisan one. So we introduced them like federal and state. So instead of me and Senator Holscher and Representative Underhill or anything, if the committee does it, so it doesn't have our names on it. So it removes that. So it doesn't become a distraction. But these, it was okay because uh, Senator McGinn came into my room and said, uh, do you want to sign on to this death penalty one? I was like, yeah, I don't want that death penalty. Sure, why not? And then the other one was very similar. Do you want to give the you know uh, control to city and county? I'm always for home rule. So yes, let's do that. So that was those were two no-brainers. If they will pass or not, I don't know. But I felt like those wouldn't be, um, those would be something I think the community wouldn't be surprised for me to be uh, signing on to. And uh, so I felt, yeah, and not everybody signs on to everything. So I had to be cautious, but I also don't want to say no when they ask you and think, oh, she's one of those or something. But uh, I think people know who to ask. <laughs> yeah. So I don't mind signing on to those. Okay. Okay. And 
Um, as we look forward, I guess I'm sort of rounding around to the end of the conversation, and I'm curious um, maybe what maybe some of your goals for the term are, if you have any goals beyond sort of getting your feet under you and figuring out your way as a senator, what are you hoping to achieve this term? And and then, of course, then you have to look at reelection. Right. So I'm hoping, I mean, I've, I've done so many things, even the 4.2 that I wanted to get out of the general fund for this. I'm hoping I get one win. You know, I've done a variety of things, you know, close to five bills now. Uh, we talked on uh, several issues, you know, even talked about funding for certain things. So if I get one win, I'll be thrilled and excited about it. And now I know the process better. And so once this, I believe the term might actually end like in, I don't know, end of April, maybe early May, and then start running for election for this office. And uh, I hope I can show the community uh what I've done and what I will continue to do and what they would like me to do on their behalf. And that's going to be the process. You know, I don't know if I'll be primaried. I'm sure there'll be also a um, a Republican or two that are also going to be going for this position, if not more. So it's going to be a interesting race that's very different than city commission where you have three choices or four choices. Here you're just one. And, and so we'll see how the community feels about it. But I also feel this time it's only going to be Riley County. There won't be parts of Junctions County or parts of Clay Center. And this community has seen my name at least three, four times on the ballot that they voted for me. You know, so they, they're not unfamiliar with me. Uh, so I just need to make my case back to them. And that's going to be uh, a good thing for me to do to reconnect with all the places that I didn't know before. And um figure that out. And I will really do my hardest work trying to get reelected to this office because there's just so much work to do. And uh, I feel I'm still the best representative for this position. Does it add a little level of comfort being at least uh, at least a two-year incumbent? I know that always mm-hmm. makes things a little easier in an election, but as a relatively new selection, I'm sure there are, as you mentioned, a few people out there probably eyeing an opposition slot mm-hmm. to perhaps either primary or get in on the uh, Republican side of the ticket. It's good and bad because once you're an incumbent, you have a record now. So whatever I voted on or didn't vote for, that could be on the big poster cards that they sent out. Uh, so that could be against we used against you. But the good thing is I can also speak to what I have been working on and what I have brought to the community and uh, how I can still do more because I know the infrastructure things. I know parks and rec things. I know our water systems. I know the partnerships and relationships we have. So I feel like I can speak to it. And also speak to the bipartisanship and how I do work across the aisle. I, I'm not an anti-somebody person. I'm more issue focused. And, uh, and I hope the community sees that. And that's and I hope they recognize that's how I functioned on the city commission. And that's how I'm going to function at the state level. So it'll be interesting because I don't know what kind of people are going to want to go for this position. But it'll definitely be uh, very different than city commission. And I guess I, we can end on maybe your thoughts on Senator Hawk. You know, he served in the position for quite some time, and he's just been a really amicable person in the region. He's worked well with people of various ideologies and groups. And I'm curious how you feel to be able to sort of step in in his stead. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope I'm not too different than him. I, you know, he and I have been friends forever, and uh, he is. Um, I think he's done really well. I knew him as a superintendent. I, I've known I, you know, Diane for a long time and as a teacher, public school teacher. And he's been very accessible. Anytime I had something at the city commission, I felt like he needed to know about at the state and vice versa. He would call me, hey, this is going on. What do you think I should do? Or do you have more information about this? So we've had a really good relationship. 
And I think uh, I've learned a lot from him and I'm certainly not going to try to fill those shoes because I can't. My shoes are just very different. I just bring a whole different image to this seat. I'm an entirely different type of person. I function differently. But I hope on some things we are similar in the fact that I'm not there to make people mad. I'm there to work with them as well and do what's in the best interest of the community and the state at large. And I hope on, on those two factors, we are more similar than different. Much appreciation to Senator Reddy for taking the time to speak with me. If you'd like to reach out about state business, visit kslegislature.org, and you can also get in touch with her about city affairs at cityofmhk.com. Music in this podcast is provided by artist Blush Akimbo. You can look them up on SoundCloud, YouTube, Instagram, as well as TikTok. And further thanks to Wildcat919 for their support in carrying this podcast. I'll talk to you next time. Peace. Peace.